Okay. But sometimes when the you are in these really special natural environments, it's like you really shouldn't touch anything, right? Because you know you don't want to disturb the natural environment. But in those cases, the icebergs they're just going to melt. You yeah, know? exactly. So like, hey, pick up this big thing and you know do whatever you want. With did it your did your hotel fun. did your bartender offer to make you a uh, a, a drink with the ice? Oh, no, so yeah. we didn't really stop. I mean, we stopped in, you know, just we were doing the kind of the loop road and uh, just hitting a number of sites yeah. per day. Yeah. So we brought we brought a bunch, we brought a, a, a chunk of it back like what you had and uh, yeah, and had it in our in our drinks. Yeah, that's what that's super cool. And, you know, and I'm always, I'm 10, always year old ice in your in your uh, amazing. Your yeah. I mean, yeah. the consistency of it, that's just like that hard pack. You know, it's not like anything you, you encounter elsewhere. So. Yeah, it's a it's a surreal experience to go there. Yeah, the the diamond Absolutely. beach in uh, in Iceland. Hey, Amazing. so we're live. So, uh, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> uh, so now the question is, is turned on you, Alex. See yeah. how you like it. <laughs> uh, my name is Alex Tichi. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Academia Seneca Institute of Astronomy and Astrophysics uh, here in Taipei, Taiwan. And uh, what I do mostly is uh, look for exoplanets and particularly the moons of exoplanets, which we call exomoons. And I imagine we'll talk a bit more yeah, about for that. Sure. So then let's talk about the, the, I guess the state of the art now in searching for exoplanets, how, how are you doing this today? Uh, so, you know, I've really just kind of gotten into the exoplanet search uh, for the for the first time with one of my students. Um, so it, I've just, you know, I'm definitely not on the state of the art. We're using pretty tried and true methods, which is uh, in this case, going through the test data um, and uh, particularly looking at this thing called the continuous viewing zone. So, you know, TESS is uh, looking at the entire sky, but there's some overlap at the ecliptic poles where it, it instead of seeing just a month's worth of the sky, it gets a full year of the sky. Huh. And data is, uh, you know, because it's a space telescope, we don't, um, it's kind of a data intensive to download absolutely every image. So what they do is they select uh, select targets and down, download that at what we say a very high cadence, meaning a lot of uh, images of those select stars. But then there are, you know, lots of images being taken that don't get downloaded every you know couple of minutes those are called the full frame images uh, but you can still get useful science out of those um and so that's particularly what i've been doing is uh, looking at those full frame images of the contest uh test continuous viewing zone in hopes of finding particularly long period planets that's something that you know because i'm so interested in exo moons we think that the moons are uh predominantly going to be found at greater distances from their host star and so, um, you know, when it comes to exoplanets, I've been uh, particularly interested in these in these longer period planets. Getting the same part of the sky, is it like near the pole? Like, how is this, where is this spot in the sky? Exactly right. It's at the ecliptic poles. And so the TESS uh, has these four cameras that are aligned kind of uh, vertically with respect to the ecliptic plane. And so, you know, they uh, stack up like that. And, uh, you know, the, the telescope itself stares at one patch of sky for about 27 and a half days, and then it moves over to the next patch of sky and it just keeps kind of uh, sliding along like that. But at the top, there's overlap, right? At the, at the poles, you know, you get these, it's not always the, the same exact sensor 
on those stars, but you will observe that star again and again and again. So it's just, uh, you know, at, you know, the higher latitudes you go, the more overlap there is in these uh, uh, fields of view. And so uh, at the ecliptic poles, you get a full year of data, which is quite huh. nice because, you yeah. know, again, we're looking yeah. for long period planets. Um, they transit much more rarely. And when I say long period planets, these are still planets with uh, probably less than a uh, one year orbital period, right? So they would, you know, at least in a system kind of like our solar system, they'd be interior to the Earth's orbit. So they're not super cold, um, but they're also not, you know, these 10 day uh, orbital periods that we are obviously going to find a lot of those with tests because of these, um, you know, these short baselines. So then what, uh, what are you hoping to find? I'm, I'm assuming you've, I mean, I'm sure this is a lot of people are looking in this region as well. It seems like a pretty juicy spot to search for planets. Um, yeah, right. How, how, uh, what have you found in there so far? Well, uh, what are this people is an ongoing project. Yeah, this is uh, sort of my first uh, chance to work with a, with a student, uh, which has been really exciting. I've got a really fabulous student, and he's applying for graduate school now so I'm, I'm i'm hopeful that he will uh, land someplace great so it's been sort of exploratory for me uh, to to do the planet search for the first time and obviously him it's mostly his project um and so we've been using you know pretty tried and true uh, methods looking for these uh, uh, transit signals and uh, and then you know once you uh, find potential signals then you go and fit them and see if they are actually planets or maybe they're eclipsing binaries or something like that so it's ongoing i'm uh, you know i would say that i'm not uh, doing anything really revolutionary <laughs> when it comes to this uh but uh but yeah we'll see what we find there's a lot of data to go through uh obviously a lot of people working on it but you know you never know if you hopefully find something uh, find something novel in there and, you know, we've, we've talked to people searching for exoplanets plenty in the past using the transit method, the radio velocity method, etc. Um, your specialty is in exomoons. Right. Why are exomoons important? It's a great question. And uh, I answer it in every talk that I ever give. There's really a variety of... Uh, so hopefully it's well rehearsed. I've, uh, there's really a variety of answers to that question, I think. But... Uh, where I would always start is to say that when we're doing uh, exoplanet work and by extension exomoon uh, searches, uh, we're of course learning a lot of amazing things about these worlds. They're fascinating in their, their own right. Um, but we're also turning a mirror on ourselves, right? Uh, every time we learn more about these other places, we learn more about ourselves. In what ways are we ordinary and in what ways are we extraordinary? And I think that's still very much an open question and bears directly on this question that I think is uh, really fundamental, which is the search for life. You know, how common are we? Uh, are there lots of uh, other uh, folks out there to talk to or are we spectacularly alone? It's an open question. And so when we see our own solar system, you know, we had a very tidy picture of how it came to be. Um, and, uh, you know, we see a lot of moons, particularly in the outer solar system. It's a good guess that we will see a lot of moons uh, out there in other systems, but until we see them, we really don't know. I mean, that's just sort of one piece of the puzzle about uh, understanding, you know, who we are, what is our context in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, apart from that, you know, what I would tell astronomers is that we think that the moons can be important uh, tracers of a dynamical history, meaning, you know, uh, how did these systems form and evolve? If you look again at the moons in our solar system, they provide a lot of clues 
uh, as to what was happening in the early formation. You know, we, whether you're looking at Earth's moon, we've got a large uh, moon that seems to have been caused by an impact. Mars got these two little small moons. Jupiter's got, you know, huge number of moons, Saturn. Uranus, they're all tipped up on the side, just like the planet is. Uh, Neptune's got this captured moon. Pluto, all these Kuiper belts, all of these moons, yep. they're all providing yep. important clues as to uh, what, uh, what was happening in the early years. And again, when we're looking at these exoplanetary systems, we likewise see just a snapshot in time. You know, we're able to see these protoplanetary systems. Uh, and then we see other systems that are billions of years old. We just get that one shot at it. And so we need ways of uh, figuring out what happened in the past uh, to these systems. And finally, I would say that, uh, you know, if you look at the moons in our solar system, they are attractive places to look for life. They are geolog geologically active and diverse. Uh, they have an abundance of water, in some cases, uh, liquid water, uh, we think. And in at least one case in our solar system, a thick atmosphere. Right. And so when you think about the moons in our solar, excuse me, outside of our solar system, similarly, they could be attractive places uh, to look for life. And, uh, you know, in the next few decades, I think these places, just like the rocky planets that uh, uh, astronomers are so interested in characterizing, in the, in the coming decades. These moons, I think, are just as fascinating and interesting worlds, real true worlds in their own right. And so I think they will be deserving of uh, not just discovery, but characterization in the decades to come. So, I mean, we're familiar with the moons that are here. Sorry, I'm just, I'm reconfiguring the uh, the video a bit here. Um, my, my computer was complaining about the amount of resources that I have. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm having to, to muck around with it a bit live in real time um so apologies in advance but but like you know in our solar system we've got the the moon um mm -hmm. we've got <laughs> the the moons uh, of the of the gas giants as you said which are fascinating worlds ice right. worlds potentially with liquid water underneath you've got titan which is just a weird moon with as you say a thick atmosphere there are reasons to think why the moon of Earth is essential for life on Earth. There's reasons to think that the other these other moons could have life underneath them. And so, you know, the trap that we fell into last time is that as we look around the the Milky Way, we're going to find planets like like the solar system, we're going to find some terrestrial planets, we're going to find some gas giants, we're gonna find some ice giants, we're gonna find some some dwarf planets, etc. And yet the reality turned out to be wackier and crazier than we ever could have imagined. So what are, I guess, exomoons that you can imagine that we have no analog for here in the solar system? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And I think, um, well, well, I mean, uh, easy place to start is this uh, candidate moon that we, uh, you know, potentially identified uh, a few years back around uh, this planet Kepler 1625b. I say candidate because, you know, today uh, it's not a confirmed moon. Sometimes people talk about it as a confirmed moon. Some people say, you know, it's entirely not there. Uh, our uh, expert opinion is that it is maybe there, uh, but uh, it is unproved. And uh, anyway, the, the interesting thing about this moon, if it's real, is that it is spectacularly large, uh, much larger than anything in our solar system, the size of Neptune. And uh, that by itself is reason enough to be uh, skeptical, but you can't uh, write it off uh, entirely as just totally implausible. So this moon 
if it exists, size of Neptune. The planet, the host uh, planet is a few times more massive than Jupiter. If you do the math there, the mass ratio between these two moons is only about 1%, which is actually the mass ratio between Earth and our moon. Hmm. So even though we're really not used to the idea that people say, well, that looks like a binary planet, and how can you possibly have something the size of Neptune going around it? Uh, uh, you know, super Jupiter. Um, but, uh, you know, it's plausible. And there were papers that came out uh, in the wake of our, uh, in the wake of our work saying, yeah, actually, you could make this through some sort of uh, capture scenario. So um, that's just one example of something mm -hmm. that you might have. Um, you know, in fiction, we see moons that are Earth-like, right? Hmm. That is Indoor and Pandora. How um, would that work then? Well, you know, uh, you would obviously probably want to be a little more massive, uh, which is, again, uh, totally conceivable. Uh, so, you know, you imagine a moon orbiting uh, probably a gas giant. The moon itself is, you know, closer to an Earth mass rather than, a you know, a moon mass. We're talking 10 to the 24 uh, kilograms or so. Uh, so it's able to hold a thick atmosphere, uh, you know, maybe even has its own magnetosphere or something like that. But it's quite interesting that, uh, you know, people have done work about how you could have something like this. Uh, you know, for example, there is uh, what they, you know, basically like a moon habitable zone, just like we have a habitable hmm. zone uh, around a, a star based on how much light you're receiving from the star. You also get internal energy from, uh, from orbiting the planet, right? So, you know, Jupiter is a classic example where we see Io is this volcanic world. There's just tons right. of energy in there. Um, and then, you know, as you go farther out, obviously there's, there's less energy being injected in there. That's an important part of the, um, energy economy of a, of a planet. So you can kind of do that math again and say, what, uh, sort of range of, uh, orbits around a planet, uh, might give you an appropriate energy economy to have say, you know, stable liquid water on the surface and that sort of thing. So, um, so you could have, sorry, like you could have a, a, a planet that is orbiting a star, and it's maybe just outside the habitable zone of that star, but then the planet has a moon and through tidal interactions, it's warming up the moon. So suddenly when you get the sunlight plus the tidal heating, you're back in the habitable zone. Right, right, exactly. Now there's all kinds of other, you know, considerations, uh, you know, moons, we tend to see them as uh, tidally locked, right? So, uh, you know, that's going to be something very different than the Earth, where, you know, you're going around and you have several days, you know, more like our moon, where you have several days soaked in darkness and then uh, several days of, uh, you know, un unending uh, sunlight, starshine. So, uh, you know, these are very much open questions. And, um, you know, it remains to be seen whether you really truly can have something kind of like an Earth analog as a moon. Uh, you know, at the very least, I think life would be quite different, uh, but, you know, still potentially habitable, I would say. And this is why we have to uh, actually find them. Yeah. Uh, this is another sort of important thing. We have this ongoing dialogue between the theorists and the observers. We have this all throughout uh, astronomy. And when it comes to these sorts of uh, things, moons in particular, the theorists can get way out ahead of us. They've had you know decades uh, to study the moons in our solar system. Again, they have a very tidy picture about how these things form. Uh, but we really need to test all of these uh, ideas in an exoplanetary context to really know uh, whether these things are, are possible or plausible or, or maybe even abundant 
Uh, these are all very much open questions. It, it, it does feel, I mean, as you say, it feels like it's inevitable. It's a no brainer that these things are out there. And yet so far, your team has one candidate object. I've heard rumors of, of others in the past, also from your team, I think, um, or from David. Um, so uh, David Kipping, the head of the, of, I guess your your advisor back in the uh, back at Columbia. Um, what what is the technique? How much more difficult is it to find an exomoon than to find an exoplanet? Well, it's a lot more difficult. Otherwise, we would have found more of them by now. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's a combination of observational uh, features, uh, both from the instrumentation side and also just uh, uh, sort of geometrical or temporal uh, facts of life that we uh, that we are contending with. So let me talk about those briefly. Uh, a moon, of course, is much smaller uh, than a planet generally. I mean, you know, you can maybe imagine a, a moon that's the size of the Earth, but we have no solar system analogs for something like that. So if we're just looking for solar system moons, they're quite small and really at the very low end of anything uh, that we have been able to detect uh, by transits. Now, I think it's still very important that we look for the transits because, again, we might very uh, much be surprised by what we find out there. You know, you should never exclude the possibility that you'll find something much larger uh, than a solar system analog. But, you know, if that's our uh, frame of reference, then these things are already uh, quite difficult to detect. And then, we, you know, we're contending with this issue of uh, if we're looking for transits, you know, imagine a Jupiter analog a true Jupiter analog orbits at something like uh, five astronomical units takes 12 years to go around. Right. The nominal mission of uh, Kepler was four and a half years, right? It was supposed to be longer, but we got four and a half years staring at those stars. So just from a time uh, standpoint, you have a one in three chance of a seeing, seeing a single transit of a true Jupiter analog, right? Um, that's uh, setting aside the geometrical considerations, which say that uh, a longer period planet has a much uh, lower uh, probability of transiting uh, just by getting the angle just right. You know, right. The farther out you are, the more perfectly edge on uh, you have to be. So we're continuing with that as well. So, uh, you know, maybe it's not surprising that we haven't found these moons uh, yet. I think really the question that we were not uh, maybe fully contending with before was that... Um, you know, we were asking the question whether or not you can have a lot of moons at uh, small distances from the star, right? We, we kept saying we're just looking for moons just like we're looking for moons in our solar system. But what we were really doing was looking for moons close into the star. And uh, we don't see any moons. You know, Mercury has no moons. Venus has no moons. Mm. Could they have moons, right? Uh, Earth just has this one large moon, but we don't know how anomalous that is. And then Mars uh, has tiny moons These tiny little ones yeah. yeah yeah so when we think about the big moons they're mostly in the outer solar system um but hmm. you know again uh we have been surprised with our exoplanetary discoveries right because we have found these jupiter mass planets at distances from their star that is so much smaller than anything that we have a, an equivalent for in the in the, the solar system so it was very important question to try to answer and i think we have uh, gotten kind of an answer to that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's maybe not the answer that we wanted, but it's an important answer. So, so then yeah. like going back to say, uh, 51 peg, 55 peg, mm -hmm. um, 
it's a 51 51 peg yeah 51 peg yeah. yeah so you know you've got this giant hot jupiter orbiting around its star it's only taking a few days to make an, an orbit around if it had a large moon a neptune sized moon um I mean, I guess it, had, it was discovered with the radial velocity method. But imagine a hot Jupiter that was discovered with the transit method with a mm. giant Neptune-sized moon, and it was orbiting really close into the star. That should... What I'm getting from you is that that should be a thing that is detectable. Well, that would definitely be detectable. Um, and I think we can probably you know, strongly rule that out uh, on observational grounds and, and really on theoretical grounds as well. And when so you get star uh, the what we call the hill sphere the sort of the gravitational influence of the planet is so small um you know there's there's two limits when we talk about moons there's an interior limit you get too close to the planet you get torn apart you get too far from the planet and you get stripped away right that uh, region shrinks so small when you're talking about hot jupiters uh, that you could never really have a, uh, probably, I mean, I'd have to do the math. I'm, I feel pretty confident to say you could never have a Neptune-sized moon. You could potentially have something like an Io, a really small little moon really hugging uh, the planet. And actually, folks have been looking for these um, through actually spectroscopic signatures. Um, and so, you know, this is another interesting question that we can try to answer. Uh, but I think it's safe to say we would never find a, a Neptune-sized moon around a planet like that anyway. And so that search that you did, I mean, that's really interesting because you're essentially saying, like, is the, like, should Venus have had a moon? Should Mercury have had a moon? Should, could Earth have had 17 moons? Could <laughs> Mars have had a better moons, bigger moons? That is the lack of moons in the inner solar system a solar system thing? Or is it a, is it a limits of astronomy that if you, if your planet is orbiting too close to your star, the star eats your moons and, and that's. And that's that. And so have you been able to get that answer? Have you been able to provide those constraints to to some degree to say, here's where we're pretty sure moons don't exist? Yeah, so that was actually my first uh, paper with David Kipping uh, when I started as a graduate student. We were looking at kind of the population. Uh, we had this uh, pretty uh, nice uh, technique that we had gotten from uh, another ExoMoon uh, researcher, Renee Heller. The idea is that, you know, if you have a uh, consider a, a single planet around a, uh, with a, a single moon and it's going around the planet, of course, every time it transits, the moon shows up in a different place. So you lose a little bit of starlight, you know, sometimes over here, sometimes over here before the transit or after the transit. But if you take a lot of those transits and stack them on top of each other and take a time average signal, what you will see is sort of a, a drop in the you know, the starlight, the flux, we would say, uh, on either side of this, uh, this planet. And it turns out that you can do the same sort of trick with many planets, right? So uh, each individual moon might be very challenging to detect, but you could take a lot of planet transits. And in that work, we took several thousand transits and stacked them on top of each other and looked for this missing flux hmm. due to the presence of a population of moons, not a single one, but but many moons out there. Huh, and what that allows you to do is actually shrink the uncertainties down enough that you can start making some uh, meaningful statements about the occurrence rate of these moons. Now, there is a, a sort of a, what we would call a degeneracy there where you have two uh, variables that are playing off one another and you can't really tell which one is controlling it. The degeneracy here is the occurrence rate of moons and also the size of the moons, 
right? So you can lose a lot of flux because you have big moons or because you have a lot of moons and you don't really know which one is, is which. So you can kind of ask that question and, and, and run the numbers and, uh, and place some, for the first time, meaningful constraints on the occurrence rate. And we find a, a low occurrence rate. It's uh, uh, for, uh, you have to kind of set one parameter and, and, and do the other. So um, what we can say is an occurrence rate of Galilean analogs, meaning like the big moons of Jupiter, uh, how uh, frequently do we see something like that in the Kepler data? And the answer is something like uh, 0.16 plus or minus 0.13. <laughs> right, but you're still, <clears throat> which yeah. is a low number. Low, yeah, yeah. it's low. So, but right. you're still, you that's still in in this case having planets that are relatively close to the star. So it'd be Galilean, like Galilean moons around a Jupiter that is orbiting at the within the orbit of Mercury. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. much much closer in. So true Jupiter analogs. Uh, we can, you know, we have a couple of examples uh, where we can call something a Jupiter analog because it has a similar uh, level of uh, insulation or installation receiving the uh, equivalent amount of starlight that Jupiter is. Uh, there's this planet Kepler-167e, which is uh, only at about uh, uh, 2 AU or something like that, but it takes uh, you know several years to go around and receives the equivalent amount of starlight. We would say that's kind of like a Jupiter, uh, mm -hmm. but a true Jupiter way out five, uh, five astronomical units we really don't have many examples of those in the transit data with when it comes to radial velocities or, you know, these other detection uh, methods that we have, we have found some of those planets, but with transits, uh, those are pretty hard to come by. So what, I guess, you know, if you, if money was no object and you had the best telescopes in the world at your disposal, um, what, if you were to design a mission that is purposely, looking for exomoons, would it be any different than a amazing just exoplanet hunter? Well, yeah, I think there would be a lot of uh, similarities there. Uh, aperture, you know, the size of our mirror really uh, is everything when it comes to the time domain science, right? You can imagine taking a telescope and just you, if you're looking at a, a fixed object, say you're looking at a, a very distant galaxy or something where it's not changing at all, uh, at least in an appreciable time scale, you can just take all the light in that you want. You just keep drinking in the photons, <laughs> right. And, right? You know, you can you can get uh, see these very very faint objects even with a modest uh, telescope, right? A, a mirror really does two things for you. It uh, soaks up a, a bunch of light, and also the larger the mirror, you get a better you know angular resolution, right? Um, in a case of looking at transits, we don't really need. Uh, angular resolution because we're just monitoring the brightness of a essentially a point source. Um, but because we're now in the time domain, you can only soak up certain amount of photons per unit time, right? right. Just like my eyes can only see so much when I'm staring at the sky, but then I take a long, uh, you know, long exposure photo and then the, the Milky right. Way just pops out, right? Like during so, the transit, you need as many photons as possible. Exactly right. right. You know, and, you know, the baseline, you know, just to, to shrink your error bars down, um, you just need a bigger, uh, bigger mirror. So if we had a bigger mirror, we would be much more sensitive uh, to these uh, small transits, and that would be fabulous. Also, we just need really long uh, time baselines, right? So we really need to be monitoring. You know, Kepler was fabulous, but monitored one patch of sky. 
tests, monitors the whole sky, but just gets these very short baselines. So if we could really have the best of both worlds, monitoring the whole sky for very long uh, baselines, I think that would also, it would be a huge amount of data, but I think we really would uh, start to start to detect these things. Um, one thing that I sort of tell people about the exomoon search is that, uh, you know, it's, it's in some ways fundamentally different from the exoplanet search because we got very spoiled with these short period planets. You know, again, it was no guarantee that they would really be there. And they just kind of fell into our lap. You know, these hot Jupiters we now know are not super common, something like 1%. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're not incredibly common, but there's enough of them. And they're easy enough to see that we get to study them. You know, they come around every couple of days. If you want to observe one with Hubble, you say, oh, we'll just point it there on Tuesday or we'll point it there on Friday or the following Wednesday and you can get your data, right? When it comes to looking for these long period planets, um, we have to, you know, we get far fewer opportunities to observe their transits anyway. And, you know, if you're thinking about radial velocities or any kind of method that you want to use to observe these, the time baselines to observe these events is, is much longer. Fortunately, it's not, you know, it's not so bad as like, you know, if your whole career was built around observing transits of Venus, uh, you'd be in trouble, right? Because we only get those once every 110 right. years or yeah. something like that. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so it's not that bad. But, uh, you know, we do have to get sort of comfortable with the idea that sometimes we'll make an observation and then we don't get to see that planet come around again for another three or four years and transit again. And, you know, if we had enough of these systems, um, then we could, you know, really make it a kind of regular thing. We're going to observe this one. We have a you know whole calendar of the ones uh, that we're going to observe. We, we don't have to just twiddle our thumbs for four years waiting for the next planet to, to come around. But uh, we need to be laying those foundations uh, in order to get the observations that we really need. That's why I'm sort of uh, really excited about this uh, global effort uh, with, the, with the Unistellar group, you know, the citizen science where they, I think they just did it actually, uh, performed an observation of this planet that I mentioned a few minutes ago, Kepler-167e, this very long period planet, and they've enlisted the global community to observe this uh, observe this transit because it is really a special event. Hmm. We don't get very many of these. And uh, observing from the ground, obviously, you can be clouded out. Um, you have to propose to get this uh, telescope time. How are, you know, you've got to make sure that you actually get the telescope time. It doesn't break down, and you've got clear skies. Um, so really going to space is the is the only way that you can guarantee that you'll be able to see these uh, events uh, unobstructed. But but, yeah, we have to lay the groundwork and, and play the long game a little bit. Um, so, you know, you're mainly talking about the transit method. I mean, there are other techniques to search for planets, uh, the radio velocity right. method, direct imaging uh, and even some astrometry. There's some even more interesting and extreme methods that are starting to pop up, like detecting the magnetosphere of a planet because of the radio emissions um you know again do any of the other methods seem intriguing to you as a as a way to search for exomoons yes so you know i've just been talking about the the challenges of transits and so i think it is very important that we uh, you know explore other ways of looking for these things and fortunately i do think that uh, in the coming years we we have some exciting possibilities uh for one there is uh, you know, increasingly the possibility that we will be able to measure the radial velocity of the planet, not the radial velocity of the star, but the planet itself. So hmm. we see the planet through direct imaging, right? In these cases where we have something. Oh, like okay. 
beta pic where you you see the star and then you can see the planet resolved separately if you can get the spectrum of that planet then all of a sudden you can measure reflex motion of that planet and potentially detect uh, moons that way um, and so that uh, was proposed a couple of years ago and just in the last few weeks they put out a first paper uh, where they tried to do this the data was not meant for this and they put you know sort of um, uh, upper limits uh, or lower limits uh, on these uh, masses that are crazy high. They say, okay, well, we're sensitive to uh, a moon that is twice the mass of Jupiter or something like that. So it's not great yeah. right now, but it's a proof of concept. I mean, really in the coming years, we should be able to do That's uh, really that interesting. as our, as our uh, you know, spectro spectroscopic methods become uh, more sensitive. So well, that's really- So before yeah. you move on then, I want to I kind of dig into this a little, a little deeper here. So, sure. so you're, you're with the radial velocity method, you are measuring the the redshift of the light coming from the star and using that to infer that there's a planet orbiting around it. And right. so with direct imaging, you're now taking it one step farther, you are imaging the planet, and then watching the spectrum of the light coming from the planet, and using that to infer the existence of a moon going around that planet, that seems that seems really feasible. It's feasible. It's very hard. It, I'm assuming uh, you've got this, you know, a, a, a telescope capable of direct imaging planets. Right. Uh, yes. So, you know, so the, you know, one big challenge with this is uh, that uh, this is really only appropriate for a handful of nearby uh, planets. The direct imaging planets that we have, even though direct imaging has been around at this point for, I don't know, 20 years or more, um, the best we can do is see these planets that are at wide separations that are also nearby. You can imagine, you know, the, the closer a system is, the, the, the more they are separated on the sky. And as they get farther away, they're, they're closer together. So our angular resolution only allows us to observe these uh, quite nearby systems. And the planets tend to be shining by their own light. They tend to be very young systems um, because we're, we're really seeing their, their heat from formation rather than their uh, reflected uh, starlight. In time, we should be able to get closer into the star, right? The star is billions of times brighter than the planet. Um, so that's part of the reason why we have to go so far out is, you know, the, the, the star is just overwhelming us and we have to block out that light. In time, what they call the inner working angle, how close we can get to the star, that is expected to shrink. Um, and then also, you know, our spectroscopic uh, measurements should be able to get to better in time for, for uh, measuring these planets but these planets you know they are uh you know a little more complicated than stars sometimes they have all kinds of stuff going on you would now kind of be looking at the stellar spectrum as well as the planet's uh, spectrum and trying to disentangle those um uh, you know the theoretical work uh, has been done a couple of years ago or at least some of it uh, important foundations by andrew vanderberg uh and uh, so yeah it's it, it seems feasible uh but it like any other technique is going to have its its limits so it's not gonna you know it's not gonna solve all of our problems right. uh, but i think in the next you know 10 years or so this could we you know we really could have some exciting det detections with this method. and it sounds like actually the transit method comes back on the table again because now if you're at, you are able to image the planet for long periods of time you could detect changes in the planet's brightness as the moon is passing in front uh potentially you'd have to have the uh you know the 
the geometry would have to be just yeah. right, right? We're always dealing with this, you know, uh, chances are, I mean, it's much better chance that you're going to see something a little tipped, uh, tipped up. But of course, the, that's what's nice about the radial velocities is that you can see them even when they're not perfectly yeah. aligned. Right? There's, again, sort of a degeneracy here between the inclination angle and the masses of these planets um, that comes into consideration. But yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. direct imaging as we get better with uh, Louvoir or you know, the infrared and optical and UV large telescope uh, yeah. that shall not be named <laughs> based on the decadal survey. Uh, yeah, you know, this this is really exciting. And of course, we can do that work with uh, ground-based telescopes. Yeah. Most of that work has been done with uh, ground-based telescopes with these extremely large telescopes and adaptive optics um, and these spectroscraps, spectrographs that are, that are enormous. Um, you know, yeah, like I say, 10 years, I don't know exactly what the timeline is, 10 to 20 years, I think um, we should have some of these detections. One of the other ideas that sort of popped up to become more popular recently is this idea of rogue planets, that mm. there could be as many rogue planets as there are regular planets, planets that either right. formed in situ out of smaller gas clouds or debris clouds or planets that were kicked out of other star systems are now freely roaming the galaxy. And in theory, right. these planets could have moons. Yes. And now you don't have the brightness of the star to contend with if you can detect the the planet in using some very sensitive infrared observatory or something. Does that give you a better shot of being able to detect moons? Yeah, so I think this is a uh... Or brown dwarfs, um, right? Right. So this was a, this another paper that just uh, recently came out where they said, okay, let's look at the brown dwarfs and look for transits of the brown dwarfs, right? Uh, if you imagine a, a brown dwarf, something like Jupiter, right? They they are roughly the same size, and of course they are shining by their own light. They're very cool, but we still see them in the in the infrared, right? So they are emitting light uh, themselves. Uh, you can look for these transits and these transits, uh, the, if they are true moons, you know, if they've been formed like a moon, they'll be pretty close in. And so you have a pretty good uh, geometric probability of seeing them as well as a temporal, uh, you know, you've got a good chance of, of seeing these transits. Um, it begs the question, is that a planet and a moon or is it a brown dwarf and a planet? Does it really matter? Right. Um, you know, I have uh, sort of watched uh, terminology discussions in the community with some mild irritation because ultimately it doesn't really matter right. <laughs> what we call them, uh, except for how you sell your science sometimes, right? So um, exomoon uh, stuff gets, gets a lot of attention. And so sometimes I guess I will be a little sort of uh, wary of people calling things uh, moons if it's really just a planet. Um, but again, the, the dividing line between those uh, when it comes down to it is is not clear at all. We're talking about uh, formation mechanisms, right? How did this thing come to be? We're interested in that question. You know, I really want to know if I see something like a brown dwarf that has uh, something orbiting around it. Did it form as a, uh, you know, in a circumplanetary disk and that that uh, object was originally a planet that got kicked out? And how did that happen dynamically? How did the moon survive? You know, those are all a variety of interesting questions that we would want to interrogate. Um, and ultimately what we call them is uh, is less relevant, but you can certainly call them a moon uh, because they would otherwise have the uh, hallmarks of one. Now, earlier on, 
you talked about the importance of moons and and its relation to the search for life out there in the in the universe. Yep. What you know, what is your instinct right now about what role moons are going to play in the formation of life in the universe? Some people say that that Earth needed a moon. We wouldn't have life on Earth to the extent that we have without the moon. Others are not so sure. So what role do you think moons play in in life? Well, you know, I uh, will confess that I am not uh... I would say that I'm not well enough educated on the moon as essential for life on earth uh, debate to really take a stance on it. I've heard those arguments. Um, I, I guess I kind of land in the life finds a way uh, <laughs> yeah. in the yeah. category. Uh, so, you know, would life look different on earth without a moon? Certainly. I mean, you know, we suddenly we wouldn't have these life cycles with the, you know, the, the uh, sea, the the sea turtles following the the moonlight, and you, you know, you, you think of countless examples where the moon has played an important role in what happens here on Earth, and those obviously go out the window if you don't have a moon. Um, does it protect us from impactors, or does it throw impactors our way? Uh, you know, things would certainly be different without a moon. But uh, to say that we you you have to have it, um, I'm a little skeptical of that. Uh, just uh, just just on yeah. the surface. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think that's exactly I, I love that, right? Life finds a way um, yeah. that it's funny, like people, people and this is, you know, way out of your, your wheelhouse now, but for people say, well, you know, maybe single cellular life is common, but multicellular life is, is far less common. And that's why we don't see life everywhere. But mm. even that, like, I can imagine single celled life forms, forming into colonies that are behaving like multicellular organisms like like give life time and see who knows what it'll be able to to come up with um certainly yeah but but then when we look at for example these these icy moons places like the ones that are orbiting around jupiter saturn perhaps pluto charon you know, it just goes sad. No, I mean, this goes on and on and on. There, there could be by a factor of a thousand more of these icy worlds out there than there are habitable terrestrial planets. It actually shifts the yeah. the diversity of life into these kinds of of worlds. Right. And, and yet they're really tough to study because <laughs> yes. the lady life you're yeah. going to be finding is under kilometers of ice. So exactly right. Yes. So, you know, um, one thing that's sort of amazing about astronomy is how how much we interface with a variety of other fields. And one thing that uh, fascinates me is the question of abiogenesis. How do you get life to start? And I think that's a sort of fundamental question to uh, life on these moons. Uh, you know, we have uh, sea life uh, deep underwater, you know, in the most extreme environments here on Earth, we see life. You know, you have these uh, black smokers on the on the bottom of the ocean. It, you know, it's a, otherwise kind of a desert down there. But then you have these oases on the bottom of the oceans, kilometers underwater, extremely cold, very hostile environments, and yet life thrives down there. Um, and so, you know, it's totally imaginable that you could have something like that on uh, Europa or Enceladus say um the question is whether you can start life that way or whether life colonized uh those environments but really needed something more like uh uh you know proper solar uh 
radiation in order to to get going in the first place mm-hmm. that's very much an open question right so when it comes to moons yeah maybe you could <laughs> pluck something from the bottom of earth's oceans and drop it uh, into europa and it would do just fine but could you get something there um in the first place and then there is this question that you have raised about um, about studying them obviously we've got plans to do in situ uh exploration of these icy moons in our solar system and i can't wait for that to happen, I mean, it'll, I'll probably be dead by the time we're <laughs> actually Europa actually doing it. Uh, or land goes in, yeah, yeah. But uh, but you know that's that's super exciting, um, and uh, who knows what we will find. Um, you know, just like Mars. I mean, Mars is a place where we think, yeah, you could have life. I mean, I think people generally agree that life could be there, and yet we haven't found it yet. Um, and so, you know, even if life is similarly on these moons, it could be spectacularly difficult to find. It could be, you know, sitting uh, many kilometers underneath the water. And we, you know, we drill down on the surface and we'll take a peek around and say, wait, I'm not seeing anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so that could be the case. When it comes to these exoplanetary systems, uh, the moons are going to be a challenge um, because, uh, you know, at least in the near term, what we're thinking about is, uh, atmospheric characterization, right? So we can actually look at these, uh, right now anyway, these uh, I, these gas giants. The plan, of, of course, is a, eventually to be able to look at terrestrial planets, look through their atmospheres and see the constituent uh, molecules of those atmospheres. Uh, if you just have a icy rock, uh, there's nothing to look through, right? Um, I attended a... a, a sort of interdisciplinary conference uh, several years ago that was about astrobiology and you had exoplanet people there and you had uh, planetary scientists, geologists, and uh, all about the search for life. And, uh, you know, when the geologists uh, came in, they started talking about how you could detect life, you know, under underneath the surface and all the exoplanet people were being like, well, what else have you got for me? Because that's, <laughs> that's not, not, not going to work. <laughs> we're yeah. not going to we can't drill down into the surfaces of these exoplanets or yeah. exomoons. Um, you know, uh, I guess I have a little bit of faith in astronomers and scientists more generally. We are always seeing these am- amazing ideas come out of people's brains. Yes. And uh, the things that I have not imagined today um, is, you know, we could do all kinds of amazing things that nobody has thought of. Uh, yet. And I think that's one of the sort of the thrilling things about this business is just that, you know, people have a new idea and uh, five years from now, 10 years from now, it's a revolution. And now we have this new technique to look for these things. Um, And, you know, we, we, you know, sometimes I'm an optimist, sometimes I'm a pessimist. I'm sitting here saying we've run out of, we've run out of things to try, but we we never run out of things to try. New people come along with fresh ideas and uh, and we'll get some amazing stuff out of it. And I, I can't foresee it uh, right. yet, but I think it, I think it will happen. Well, so you, you mentioned this earlier, just this this balance between the theorists and the experimentalists. So you're in the would you consider yourself in the experimentalist camp, the observer camp? Mostly. I mean, I, I, I have been sort of uh, dipping my toe into theory, but uh, more from an observational perspective right. yeah so uh, trying to dream up new ways of of looking for these these exomoons yeah yeah but not for, not formation type stuff yeah and so where do, you know how do you feel about that balance between you know we see it 
run amok in the particle physics world where you've got people taking, say, string theory to the nth degree. And on the other hand, you've got the people running the Large Hadron Collider and trying to desperately find things that are an inf <clears throat> infinitely larger mass than than the strings like you know we would need to have a particle accelerator the size of the solar system to find the strings that are being the theorists are working on and so yeah. the theorists kind of always get ahead of the experimenters mm -hmm. and yet the experimenters sometimes discover things that the theorists never thought of so there's this really interesting dichotomy how do you how do you sort of feel about the balance as as you know someone who's in definitely one of those camps Right. So I think uh, I think maybe I, I mentioned it before, but, you know, so much of the, the moon study has been uh, sort of predicated on our understanding of uh, of our solar system. And that makes a lot of sense because, you know, you, you 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 do the math and you run the simulations and you say, OK, well, this pretty much accords with what we expect. So, you know, I, I think we're doing a good job. Right. Um, it's a lot harder to check yourself against reality. Uh, when you are uh, pushing out into the unknown, you can make all kinds of predictions, uh, but then it's not, uh, you know, you don't have anything te to test it against until um, until we've gotten out there. As an observer, I would say that um, I uh, tend to take what the theorists are saying seriously, uh, but I'm not going to let that uh, restrict me to saying, well, it can be this way and it can't be right. this way. Uh, so the theorists, you know, uh, sort of a big canonical result at this point says, well, when you make um, uh, moons out of a circumplanetary disk, uh, this is due uh, largely to Robin Canop, who's done a lot of important work on uh, the formation of moons. If you're making a system kind of like Jupiter's uh, moon system, the Galilean uh, moon system, they say, well, you can't really make anything uh, larger than uh, 10 to the minus four mass ratio, a one to 10,000 mass ratio for the total satellite mass. And that accords with what we see for uh, Jupiter. And, you know, that that seems reasonable. And, you know, they have uh, solid foundations for uh, for believing that. Um, nevertheless, you know, I would still look for something larger. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe maybe it's there, you know, and uh, maybe the maybe the we need to go back to the drawing board a little bit. Um, I take it seriously, but I'm not going to let that uh, hold me back from uh, postulating that there there might be uh, something that hasn't been uh, imagined yet. Hmm, that's interesting. So, um, and then of course, if you do come one that is. I mean, that's the dream, right? That you get to drop in the lap of the theorists, one that completely shatters their expectations for what they had been imagining. And now they're scrambling to incorporate the obs the true observations, because the observations are like the truth and right. is what nature is trying to tell us. And that's right. Yeah. So this was this was a, you know, sort of important uh, component of the Kepler 1625 uh, finding or, you know, potential finding, uh, I, I, you know, because it was not a solid detection. And I think we were the first to admit, you know, it was a candidate, but it was not a sure thing. I was, uh, sort of, uh, uncomfortable with the idea that people were already writing theory papers about how you make it. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, then there were a few of those, uh, because I said, well, maybe you guys are chasing a phantom. And I mean, you know, I felt that way. I felt a little uncomfortable about it. 
Nevertheless, it was still very important because it did give some sort of theoretical backing to the idea that this thing could exist in theory. And I think it was valuable because even if this particular object doesn't exist, it at least shows that maybe something like that could exist out there. Uh, and therefore it's worthwhile to, to look for more such objects. So um, yeah, uh, that it was sort of gratifying to see, you know, uh, people sort of scratching their heads and saying, well, you know, how would you make something like this? Yeah. And like I mentioned before, reason enough to be skeptical that something like it uh, could exist at all. Um, but yeah, if you can find something that's un unexplained, not uh, you know, sort of defies easy explanation, that's super exciting for us. How do you feel as as an astronomer at the results of the decadal survey, the or of the new wish list? Have you have you have you read the survey? Have you or at least seen some uh, of it? I looked over it. I didn't I didn't pay it terribly much attention. It's a I, big I document. Yeah. It's huge. And, uh, um, you know, it remains to be seen how much of it will actually come to fruition. It's a big it's a big wish list. Uh, I understand that it, uh, you know, plays a powerful role in uh, in sort of laying out where we're where we're going to go from here. Um, I guess when it comes to exomoons in particular, um, I sort of, I don't know if it's defeatist attitude or what, I've just kind of reconciled myself to the fact that uh, uh, in the near term, we're not gonna have a huge buy-in from other astronomers. Everybody's got their own thing. Everybody's, you know, doing what they wanna do. Yeah. And uh, I, I sort of uh, proselytize for exomoons. Whenever I give a talk, I say, you know, I'd really love more people to get into this because then we get more brains chewing on the problem and, yeah. uh, and money and funding and resources follow where the astronomers are. You know, if we had more exomoon people, we'd have more exomoon uh, resources. But I, 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 in the near term anyway, I think there's just not going to be that much buy-in. I don't know. It's because people are right. uh, just a little too pessimistic about the prospect of finding these worlds. I don't know what it is, but uh, uh, in the near term, what that means is that I need to work within the confines of what the astronomy community more broadly is providing. So, you know, we are thinking about what you can do with JWST, for example. Um, we're not thinking, at least I'm not thinking about, you know, what what kind of exomoon telescope would I build? I just don't see myself as the next uh, uh, Baruki or uh, or George right. Rickert, uh, right. you know, right. leading some massive <laughs> telescope operation. I just take what they give us and uh, and try to work with that. And there's a huge amount of data, right? I mean, Kepler and Tess and and these survey telescopes. Gaia is amazing. LSST or you know Vera Rubin coming down the pike. Um, I, I'm so excited by the the sort of the huge initiatives that we can just kind of piggyback on all of those. If I mean, it, it's funny, like, I don't think like anybody has a problem with the research and nobody, I'm sure, thinks that you're not going to find them. It's just like it's too hard. Like it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. I think it's super hard. And so, like, I guess it's sort of people saying like, yeah, like if you can do it, then do it. But if you can't, like, <laughs> have you thought about gravitational waves? Have you considered, you know, other yeah, it, fields like do right, people exactly. do some interesting I, work in, you know, yeah, so, you know, these days. Exactly. Uh, you know, people are doing, you know, I think it's important for me to diversify. Um, but at the same time, you know, when I was applying for a postdocs, I said, well, I could go and do something a little more, quote unquote, conventional. But uh, but there's a lot of people that are already doing that and doing it better than me. 
right? I mean, I could get into atmospheres, but you know, how many, you know, hundred other astronomers are doing atmospheres right now? There's very few people doing exomoons. And yeah. so not to put too high a value on my own contributions, but I did kind of feel like this is a, you know, special skill set that I have been developing over the past uh, several years. And it's something that the community should have. We shouldn't have fewer exomoon people. We should have more. Yeah. So if I retreat and say, okay, I'm going to go and work on something that uh, everybody else is more interested in, um, then that's a loss for exomoon science. And ultimately, um, you know, as much as I like doing this work, I'm really just more interested in, in seeing uh, breakthroughs with exomoon science. So, so um, I, I just going to kind of stick to my guns and hopefully somebody will will pay me for I'm fortunate right now someone wants to pay me to do this work yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah. who knows how long that'll last but uh, for now you know yeah. I'm pushing ahead with it yeah absolutely uh well Alex it's been super fun to talk with you um if people want to follow your work um where should they go where can they find out more about you uh yeah I'm most active on Twitter it's just my name at Alex Tichy. I also have a website alexteachy.com uh, you can find a little bit more about my work. Uh, but yeah, follow me on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> and you're a regular contributor on the Weekly Space Hangout. So That's talking right. about, yeah. you know, yeah. testing out, sampling other fields of astronomy, finding yeah. out, trying them on, see how they feel. <clears throat> yeah, definitely check us out on the Weekly uh, Space Hangout, as yeah. always. Awesome. Well, yeah. Alex, thank you. It was a pleasure to to chat with you. Uh, I'm really excited uh, for the work that you're doing. I think it is really important, and I'm glad you're doing it. And uh, I look forward to hearing your first concrete, no question announcement of an exoplanet. <laughs> Ideally, yeah. Endor. Like it's just going to be Endor, Endor, Endor. Oh, yeah. As soon as you find it, um, then yeah. you're going to be the then then you'll be the toast of the town. <laughs> well, thanks, Fraser. I really right. it's. It's been a great uh, chatting with you. And, All right. Uh, thanks, man. And for having me. Yeah. All right. Take care. Take care. Uh, stop stream.